Amen. So, hey, we're going to be carrying on in the book of Philippians this morning. Um, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, we started in chapter 1, and I was so long-winded, we only got through 12 verses, and there's 30. So we're going to try to get through the last two-thirds this morning. So I thought we'd just, um, I just want to read through. We're going to be in verses 12 through 30, and just read through as we come to the Word. Paul starts off in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It has also been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that I saw you had, and now here that I still have. So Paul starts out in the text we're looking at today in verse 12, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that this has happened to me. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You know, we think of Paul and, and, and think of what's gone on in this guy's life. You know, we, we know how, what happened in, in the town of Philippi, how, how the gospel came to Philippi, and where Paul and Silas were beaten up and thrown in prison. Not only were they thrown in prison, God miraculously busted them out, but we see that, that to me, I see Paul shows great character of a godly man. When he has the opportunity to run out of prison, what does he do? He stays there. He stays there, and he's... He ministers to the men around him. He ministers to the family of the, the prison guard. Rather than people dying and people running and escaping, he's a good testimony to Jesus. He's advancing the gospel. And, and we know what happens also in his life. He, you know, Paul's had a crazy life. He goes from stonings to shipwrecks to prison to beating to, you know, everything you can think of. I think of in Malta, the, the testimony that Paul must have had when he was on that ship. 
Because when they got to Malta, what did the, what did the soldiers want to do? They wanted to slaughter all the prisoners and try to get to shore on their own. What, and Paul had enough of a testimony with that captain that he was able to, stay, to say to that captain, and the captain listened, don't harm a soul and we will all survive. And God proved faithful. The advance of the gospel, I'm sure more than one of those fellow prisoners, both in prison and on that ship, came to know the Lord through the testimony of Paul, the good testimony in his life. We see that Paul, no matter what his conditions have been, no matter where he's at, he never gives up. He never gives up being on mission for God. He never lets his guard down and just says, forget it. He's continually on mission, living a life of consistency in his life and his speech. So everything that's happened, he can say, has served to advance the gospel. Sometimes I've got to ask myself that question, does my life serve to advance the gospel? Has the good, the bad, and the ugly, does it serve to advance the gospel? Or has my testimony in my life been poor? Do my speech and my actions match up? Paul's speech and actions obviously matched up. Everything he went through served to advance the gospel. So much so that now he's incarcerated in Rome. And I find this kind of interesting, the way he's incarcerated. And it talks about the gospel being advanced. It says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard. If you take a look in your Bibles, there'll be a, um, I think mine says six, but there's a little footnote. And on the bottom, it says the whole praetorium. Now, back in these times, there was a, an elite special forces in the Roman army that would have been known as the praetori... I'm going to get my pronunciation wrong. I know it. Praetorian with an N at the end. So these are the special forces dudes. And the praetorium in battle would either be the tent of the commander, or if you're at home, it would be the fortress that the commander's based out of. So we see that Paul is being held in the praetorium. He's in the... The, the hub of the elite of the elite um, of the army, Caesar's household. In fact, the praetorium even the, um, became a political, a powerful, powerful thing. It had the elite of the elite soldiers and even had, became part of the political makeup of Rome in that day. So we see that Paul, history tells us that he was chained to a Roman guard. He was chained to one of these special forces dudes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Can you imagine, here you are, you're ordered to be chained to this prisoner. And you get there, and what's this guy doing? He's ministering, he's talking about the Lord. If I look at Paul's prayer life, I'm always kicked in the butt because his prayer life is just unbelievable, and mine is not. Can you imagine being chained to that guy and he's praying for you day in and day out? I'm sure Paul prayed for every one of those prison guards watching as Paul is sitting there ministering to his visitors, sitting there as Paul is, is penning his, write, his letters to the churches, whether he wrote them with his own hand or dictated them. Can you imagine the witness that Paul must have been in that prison? It says that the whole imperial guard knew that his imprisonment was for Christ. The message went through that praetorian, went through the household of Caesar. Unbelievable. The gospel message bears fruit. Paul's life continued, no matter what, to be on mission for God. There's something interesting that happens 
that happened as well. In verse 14, it says, And most of my brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I don't know. There's something about watching others go through trials and tribulations and seeing that Christ, their solid rock, their anchor holds strong. That tends to spur us on. You know, uh, some of you guys may know the story of um, a young pastor uh, from a Calvary chapel in Montana, Levi Lusco. Him and his wife, um, I think it was in December, they lost their five-year-old little girl. She died in his arms. And um, shortly thereafter, he gave a testimony about the loss of his daughter and going through stuff. And it's, I think the link is still on our Facebook page. And it's a powerful testimony. And I remember Levi standing up there and saying, he said, the hope that we have in Christ, the doctrine that we learned and is true in our hearts in the sunny days has proven firm in the dark days. When I hear that, I am challenged in my heart and my faith to be spurred on. I say to myself, am I in a position that in hard times I can say, yes, God is my solid rock. It spurs me on. It spurs me on. The man has hope. This is what he says in the, in the current Calvary Chapel magazine. There's a story actually about three pastors in the last year or so who have lost their little girls. And this is what Levi said. He has hope, so much hope. It is with gratitude that I look at God's faithfulness in the midst of such confusion and pain. It is, a great se- is with a great sense of expectancy that I look forward to what he desires to bring out of it still. More than anything, I'm thankful for the fact that Jesus has borne our griefs and shared our sorrows. That's a man who's in pain. And that's a man who has hope. I don't know about you guys, that spurs me on. It challenges me in my faith. Challenges me in my faith. Challenges me to speak the word. You know, the end of verse 14, he says that where the, <clears throat> the other believers were much more bold to share the word without fear. I believe that was preaching, yeah, sharing the gospel. And I think it was also in their day-to-day lives, not being afraid to speak of the Lord, to speak of their faith. You know, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We all know it well. I know it's really easy to go out and be in the world and look just like the world. I know it's easy for me to go to work and in my life and just cruise along kind of in neutral. But I'm reminded that we're not to assimilate with the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. There's to be a distinction, a distinction in our speech, a distinction in our actions, so that we can say that whatever has happened to us has served to advance the gospel. Boldness to speak. So Paul goes on. He's been in chains. He recognizes that it's all for Christ. And he goes on and he says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, 
but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know, Paul had pure motives in ministry. He had pure motives in his life. If you remember last time when we started in Philippians, uh, I believe it's in verse 1, Paul introduces himself and Timothy as bondservants. That word doulos that we're familiar with. The idea of a love servant that's serving his master because he loves him. If we were to go back to the Old Testament law, you'd see that that, that was the whole idea if you were at your seventh year, you could be released, but you loved the wife that your, your, your master had given you. You loved your children. You loved your master. You would go to your master and say, I want to stay with you. Put an all through my ear. Mark me as a bond servant, as a love servant. That's the attitude that Paul has in ministry. That's the attitude that Paul has in his life. That's the, what he's talking about when he says the latter do it in love. They know that Paul's only the mission on earth is to defend the gospel, to defend Jesus Christ, to proclaim Jesus Christ to the unknown. And they do it out of love, and in that he rejoices. Love of God and love of fellow man. But you know, there's another crew here. We see in verse 17, and this is a reality in our lives, that there's people are in ministry out of selfish ambition. They want to be recognized. Verse 17 says, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's wrong motives. It's envy and, and rivalry. I imagine that Paul was a bit of a superstar in his day. People would have known about him all over the place. In fact, I think it was in verse uh, 13 that it also said, not only the, pr the whole prison guard, but everyone, all else, have heard that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's gone about, people know about him. The Christian church of that time, they knew who Paul was. Paul was a household name. And some people were envious of that. Some people wanted to have their name elevated. You know, Paul was probably like, uh, in our evangelical day, like a, um, you know, a Billy Graham type of name, or a Chuck Swindoll, or a John MacArthur maybe. In our Calvary Chapel circles, a Chuck Smith or a Greg Laurie kind of name. A name that's known in households. And these guys, they wanted, to, they wanted to be elevated. Wrong motives. But then, and there's also the people who are rivals, that they thought that somehow they could maybe steal people from Paul's churches, his ministry, that they could somehow cause Paul more grief because they didn't like Paul or maybe he offended them. Maybe some of those letters of rebuke that were written towards them, they was written towards them, and they weren't happy with Paul. They were rivals. But how does Paul deal with this? Paul's response blows me away. In verse 18, he says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's response is rather than stooping to their level and engaging in rivalry and engaging in pondering in position, he says, I don't care. If Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, that's what matters. Not to be associated with bad doctrine and 
improper teaching about Christ. We know that when, when uh, confronted with people who were adding to the gospel and, and, and distorting the gospel in Galatians, Paul was strong. He said, I am ashamed or I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Strong words from Paul when people distort the message of truth. But if the message of truth is being taught, he might, might have a few little doctrinal differences. But Paul says, who cares? I tripped across this in my studies this week. Quote, it is a matter of historic record that the two great evangelists, John Wesley and George Whitfield, disagreed on doctrinal matters. Both of them successful, preaching to thousands of people and seeing multitudes come to Christ. It is reported that somebody asked Wesley if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven, and the evangelist replied, no. I do not. Well, what then do you think? Is, is Whitfield a converted man? Of course he's a converted man, Wesley said, but I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I will not be able to see him. Though these two brothers and evangelists in the Lord differed on a few matters, Wesley did not envy or rival Whitfield's ministry. It's challenging to me because sometimes I can look around and, I, you know, you may see a particular ministry or particular people having what we would call success. It's easy to be envious. It's, easiest to, it's easy to suddenly become the envious and rival guys that Paul's talking about. Remind to keep it about the gospel. Bless them. Bless them when the Lord's, when the Lord's doing a work. Bless them. Paul goes on. It's actually the last bit of verse 18, but it's the sentence of verse 19. Yes, I will rejoice. I love that. Yes, I will. Paul states out in a declaration. It's not, he's not talking about an emotion so much. He's saying, I will. I determine. I intend to. I intend to be joyful. I intend to find joy. I intend to keep my eyes on my maker where my joy is found. I think of, you know, when Paul and Silas were tossed in that prison, I really don't think they had a good day. I think it was a crappy day. Exceptionally so. Those guys were beat up. They were in chains. I'm sure they were sitting in the prison with blood flowing from them and some nasty old rusty chain on the edge of needing a tetanus shot. And they were hurting and bruised. And I'm reminded of what these guys did. What does the word say they did? They were singing praises to God. I don't know about you guys, but when I am downhearted, when my countenance is cast low, if I go to the place of worship, I can't stay there very long. You know, yesterday as I was preparing, I was struggling. I was having a really hard time. And uh, I was here and... I said, I, I got to get out of here. And I went home and I grabbed my guitar and I played and sang a couple songs. And as I sang praises to the Lord, God is able more than able. 
you know what? My countenance was lifted. When I, when I took my eyes off myself, off what I felt was a wound, and I'm sure Paul and Silas were hurting, they took their eyes off themselves and their problems and they focused them back on the Lord. And therefore, they can, their source of hope and their source of joy, therefore they can say, I will rejoice. Maybe not always have a perfect smile, but I will rejoice for I have hope. I always love, I believe as the psalmist says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I believe joy is a choice. Keeping my eyes on Jesus rather than navel gazing. When I start navel gazing, I find myself in the depths of depression. Paul carries on and talks about some of the things that where his joy is found and, and, and what helps him keep in joy. In verse 19, we see an expression of confidence in the place of prayer. Prayer of the others of the saints and also the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, For I know that your prayers for the help of the, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will turn out for my deliverance. You know, the importance of prayer is such a huge thing in our lives. And I don't stand here as anyone who's arrived by any way, shape, or form. In fact, um, I would say that I probably struggle in my prayer life more than I ought to. As I was thinking about this yesterday, after I went and sang a couple songs, I went and sat on the beach. Brian the Beach and his Bible. And... um, I was thinking about my prayer life, where I struggle, where my holes are. And I was thought about my guitar lessons. I'm learning uh, the Beatles' Blackbird right now. Blackbird singing in the dead of night, you know. And um, so the, the, the basic song structure, there's a first, each line, there's this first little easy bit, which is kind of boom, 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 boom. And then there's this roll, and the roll's a little bit odd in how you play it, not crazy, but it's one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four. And my guitar teacher keeps on hammering into my head. He says, don't learn it by rote. You think rote, what, you know, we talk about rote, what does that mean? Rote is a memorizing process without full attention. He said, we've got to learn this intentionally. You gotta, you gotta know your, you, you gotta get it hammered in so it's not by rote, but that you know where you are in your count. The idea being that if I'm playing this song and I miss a note, that I know where I am and I can jump right back in, keep on going. You know, if I learn this song by rote and I miss a note or two, you know what happens? It takes me a couple, two or three bars to figure out what happened and where I am. And next thing you know, the song's moved to the other part, that easy part. And now I'm completely mixed up. And it all falls apart in a great big train wreck. And I was thinking about my prayer life. How often is my prayer life become by rote? A process maybe of memorizing. You know, all of us probably have some prayer that we've memorized that we just rattle off by rote. I know I do. That maybe I'm not as intentional in my prayer life as I ought to be. 
You know, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 <clears throat> tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in all things with prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. We're to present our requests to, the God, to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I was challenged to be intentional yesterday in my prayers, to learn the count, so to speak, not by rote. I've been challenged lately to pray through lists. Something that's been challenging me. Uh, I'm struggling to learn how to pray through lists, to be intentional, so that my prayers don't become just navel-gazing. Oh, Lord, help me today. Oh, Lord, oh, no, I almost crashed. Uh, oh, Lord, my bank card isn't going to work. Or am I intentional in my prayer life to be interceding for others, to be thankful for the goodness he's given me? I tell you, it's something I'm learning in the process of learning. But there's power when we come to the place of prayer. When we're intentional. That way, you know what? When, I'm, when I have a little nasal gave, it's just one beat that's missed and I'm right back in. Rather than falling flat in my face and taking a long time to get back into good communion with my Lord. Paul also has confidence to have joy because of this power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses when I think about the power of the Spirit and what his impact in our life is I like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit that is within him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we may understand what he has freely given us idea of prayer and the help of the Spirit revealing stuff in our lives. Only, only when we're in constant communion with the Lord. But it's a place that causes us to rejoice, gives us the ability to be like Paul and say, I will rejoice. My hope and joy is in the Lord. Paul finishes verse 20 and says, Is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage... Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, Paul's looking eagerly to the Lord, completing that good work that we talked about in verse 6 last time, that God will complete the good work in his body, the, the, the work he has set for him to do while he still has breath in his lungs. He will complete the good work he began in you. What does Paul say? He's got so much hope. I will rejoice. There's power in prayer and the Holy Spirit. God will finish what he started. And he says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's interesting. Those two statements, they're inex... You can't take them apart. They're, they're incredibly linked. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I cannot say to die is gain if I can't say that to live is Christ. I can't say truly to live as Christ and not be able to say to die as gain. Paul can say this because he is a, is a man is at peace with his maker. He has no question about his salvation. No questions about his assurance in the Lord. You know, Paul's principle in life doesn't change or principle in action doesn't change. Alexander McLaren said it like this. Paul's principal purpose doesn't change whether serving the Lord on earth or serving him in heaven. 
He's serving the Lord no matter what. You know, when we can say with confidence to live as Christ and to die as gain, when we've put our trust in Jesus Christ and we trust him as our only Lord and Savior, then 1 Corinthians 15 becomes a reality in our hearts and lives. It's a famous verse and so much hope. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? There's no sting for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We can have confidence. I have confidence that the Lord has a purpose for my life. We all know the verses well in Jeremiah that he has a plan and a purpose for us. But I, I always remember in Acts chapter 13, verse 16, it talks about David. It talks about that after he had served the purpose of God for his generation, he fell asleep. And that gives me great hope. It gives me hope that the purpose that God has set out for me is not yet done because I still got breath in my lungs. It also gives me hope to say that when he's done, I'm, I'm to gain. I'm to gain. Now we also see that in this particular time, Paul was confident that he was not going to be departing and going to be with the Lord just yet. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that you will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So I believe that, I totally believe that the Spirit of God, that through that, Paul knew that he wasn't yet done. His purpose on earth wasn't done. He wasn't ready to go and sleep, so to speak. He had more work to do, more gospel message to spread, more encouragement for the, for the church in Philippi. And he says, only let your manner, actually, you know, I should say one other thing. Especially, um, it's important that we keep, that we, um, it's verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My di- desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. There's no such thing as soul sleep. When we die, we're with the Lord. That's what Paul says here. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord. Not to go and have a rest for ages. Desire and be with the Lord. Anyhow, carrying on. Only let your matter of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. If you're reading the old King James, they'll say something like, let your conversations be worthy of your citizenship. I kind of like that translation. You know, I think it might be fair to paraphrase the verse and say, since your citizenship is not of earth, but rather in Christ Jesus, let both your speech and actions prove your ambassadorship in the kingdom of God. Let's be good ambassadors. I remember an ambassador, they're sent out with a message. They don't have their own message. They're sent out with the message of the, if it's a, on earth, uh, of the nation they're sent after, or after the prime minister or the president or the government. In this case, we're ambassadors of Christ. We don't get to change the message. We're sent out with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Hope of salvation, the hope of glory. 
says, let your, let your, your life be worthy of the manner. So when I come you, <clears throat> and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in the spirit with one mind. You know, it's a wonderful thing when we as churches, we as fellow believers stand together. I've used this illustration before, but I like it. Hot rods. Um, if we are on our own, there's not a whole lot of strength. Oops. <laughs> but as I was saying to Murray earlier when I was giving a hard time, when we're bound together in unity, that, that packs a pretty good blow. When we're on our own, that little twig, there's not much strength there. We're not to be islands. I'm reminded that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two so they may lift one each other up. I'm reminded in Ecclesiastes, it tells us that a three-strand cord is not easily broken. The idea of two and the Lord wrapped together in a three-strand weave or braid. A lot of strength. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down the clothes of his collar. It's like the dew on Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. Therefore, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The blessing, life forevermore. Refreshment, the dew of the morning. Being filled with the spirit. Yeah, picture of the oil. We're to stand in one mind for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, not being frightened by any of our opponents. This is a clear sign of them to their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and still have. You know, when we stand without fear, our opponents, people who don't know Jesus, who stand against Jesus, when they see that, and they see that we don't have fear, it's a sign. That's what Paul's saying here. It's a sign to them of their destruction and the reality of our salvation that we hold strong. Last week, I was talking with uh, Carl Green on the way out the door, and he was talking about some of the stories of the Spanish Inquisition about the men of God standing quietly without fear as they were tortured. And how even at that time, the particular story he was telling me about, they never tortured in that manner again after a man standing there in boiling oil, not uttering a word. Standing there without fear. It was a sign of those opposing the gospel of their destruction and of the reality of our salvation. It's a clear sign. And Paul finishes off here in verse 29 with an interesting concept. For it has been granted to you. Not granted, that sounds good. Something's given. I like that. For the sake of Christ that not only should you believe but also suffer. You know, it's kind of weird to think of suffering as a gift, isn't it? I don't like suffering. But there is some truth that suffering grows us in our maturity with the Lord. Suffering sometimes is a pruning process to make us more fruitful. 
I'm reminded of the hope that we can have in suffering. In Romans chapter 5, famous verse, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. For while we are still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ suffered for us. But as we suffer, we go through tough things. I'm just reminded, if I go through tough things, is the gospel being shared as Paul started out, as we talked about today, that all things have happened for the advancement of the gospel. Can I say that in my sufferings? The tough stuff. I don't know what you guys are going through. Some of us might have a pretty easy life today. And some of us might be in the depths of despair. Some of us might be in the prison cell. I want to be encouraged that as we go through tough stuff, God's going to give us the strength to go through it. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He says he has a plan and a hope for us, a future. He says that we're to produce fruit. Somehow we're to keep our eyes off ourselves. I know that I tend to navel gaze so easily. I just want to be encouraged that going through tough stuff to take my eyes off myself put my eyes back on my maker where, my, where I can find perseverance and hope and joy and therefore rejoice in my suffering because I know that the Lord has a purpose for it so that I can say like Levi that in the midst of it all I'm thankful for the fact that Jesus has borne my griefs and carried our sorrows. You can read that article. It's worth reading. That man is grieving, that man is hurting, but he has hope in the Lord. There's still joy that the Lord has given him. Christ is our perfect example of, of suffering. He didn't deserve to suffer. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to be beaten. He didn't deserve to have that crown pushed into his head. He suffered for you and for I, that we can have joy, that we can have confidence, that we can have hope, that we can have peace so that we can say to live as Christ, to die as gain. And Paul finishes this chapter with one little thing, engaged in the conflict that I saw, that you saw that I had and still have. I'm reminded that it's not, a, God, the conflict that we're in, the battle we're in, the battle is not flesh and blood. We know that. But it's still a work it's not necessarily easy. I'm always reminded of in, in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a, you know, it's a great promise. It's a great promise that we'll be able to bear going through trials and tribulations, that we'll be able to bear the work of the ministry because we know that we are all ministers, not just whomever happens to be standing up here. We're all ministers of the gospel. But you know what? It's still a yoke. It's still a yoke. 
It's still a yoke to be pushed against. It's still a yoke to do the work of the ministry. It's not because Jesus is there that there's no yoke. It says that the yoke is light and easy. It's bearable. He'll give us the strength we need to persevere. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Think of that in suffering too, you know. It's going to give us the strength to get through it. Now, I wasn't going to say it, but, you know, I, like I said, I don't know what you guys are going through. Um, Julie and I, we, we had a, a, a stillborn around 20 weeks, five, well, like seven, eight years ago now. And I can say that God gave me the strength, that God gave us the strength to carry through. That God gave us the strength that when we're holding this little unborn, or well, she was born, this little stillborn baby, that there could be joy in suffering. There could be joy in knowing that that little girl is up in heaven. When I think of that little girl, I think of Morgan, actually. I think of a little girl like Morgan's age. Morgan's in dance right now. And I think of a little girl in ballerina tights dancing before Jesus. And that gives me hope and that gives me joy. That image that she's with the Lord gave me the strength to persevere and find joy when we went through that stuff in that time in our lives. That still gives me joy. So my prayer is that I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your suffering is. My prayer is that you'll be able to put your eyes on Jesus, that you'll be able to, to have confidence and hope in Jesus and be able to say that I rejoice in my salvation. Let's pray.